Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Season 3, Episode 12, The Mythology of the Curator. Our guest this week is Owen King, the author of the new novel, The Curator. In a twist on the usual podcast style, Owen will read to us a passage from his new novel, and then he and I will explore the world and the mythology of his book. In addition to being author of The Curator, Owen is the author of Double Feature, and we're all in this together, a novella and stories. He is the co-author of Sleeping Beauties, as well as Intro to Alien Invasion, and the co-editor of Who Can Save Us Now, brand new superheroes and their amazing short stories. Owen also writes over on Substack. Find him at owenking.substack.com. So I am so excited to have Owen here with us on the podcast today. And as is our way at Network Storytelling, we first ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore its meanings and its resonances. So Owen, will you tell us a little bit of a story? Yeah, I will. This is from the curator. Some characters are taking a tour. It's a Victorian set novel. And in this, in this scene that I'm going to read, some characters are taking a tour of an impoverished neighborhood, which is something that more well-to-do people would do in Victorian times in places like London and New York. They would go to the Bowery or whatever the the most impoverished place was, and they would look around. And the point of view is a dock worker named Jonas Mosey. He's a, a union leader. Their final stop was the point, the foot of rocky turf that formed the city's southern tip. At the point, the ocean air tangled with the reek of the smoke and shit and largely won out. Mosi knew this place well. It was the location of the oldest shrine in the city, 
set among the tufts of grass that clawed up from the shingle were sundry stone and wooden idols of widely differing ages and verisimilitude, some hardly identifiable as figures, let alone cats. Around the bases of the totems, flowers and fish bones and fish bits were left as offerings. A few wizened believers crouched and prayed. To appease his mother, Mosi had prayed at the point on countless occasions, though not since she had died. And as with almost everywhere in the Lees, several strays were on hand. These living, breathing cats perched on rocks or sprawled near the idols or hunkered in the pebbly grass waiting for the supplicants to finish and leave so they could have at the fish bits. They were magnificent in the way of wild cats with nicked ears and scars on their faces and coarse, bushy pelts. A few thumped their tails, but mostly they bided, narrow-eyed and still. Here, once again, Lionel defied Mosi's expectations. He thought the university boy would pull a smug face at seeing the pathetic geezers begging the cats to smile on them. Instead, as a man was straining to lever himself off his knees, Lionel hurried to his side and gave an arm to help him up. How are you, sir? Lionel asked the man, whose frayed and sun-bleached hat was the best of his sad garments and whose maroon and deeply poured nose leaked two horns of yellow snot. I'm right, sir. Thank you. Did you know that if we look after them creatures, then they'll look after us? Yes, yes, that's how it is. Do you know the story of the girl who was lost in the desert? No, Lionel said. How does it go? The man's damp, ill face opened with joy. A girl went out into the dark to see what it was like, but later she couldn't find her way home. Then she wandered for hours and days, growing thirsty fell down in the sand and thought she'd die. But what should appear but the most beautiful black cat you've ever seen, satin black? The girl looked in its eyes, and the cat looked in her eyes, and a message was delivered to her. If she rose and walked to the naked tree with the marks where the black cat had sharpened its claws and continued in that direction, she'd find water and a path. And she did, prompted Lionel. Oh, yes, sir. In the version Mosi's mother had told him, the girl was locked in a dungeon for an evil king's crime and the cat put scratches on the floor where a key was hidden beneath. But it was the same idea. She taught him all the stories, starting with the founding one, about how the devil had exhausted himself doing some mischief and fell asleep, and his wisdom escaped in the form of a cat and endowed grateful men and women with the wits to prosper. His parents had come to the city from their homeland before he was born, his father, one of the Grand Army's many foreign-born recruits, drawn by the promise of mercenary riches. After Mosi's father had died of pneumonia, leaving behind neither riches nor a pension, Mosi's mother, pregnant with Mosi, had given up her old ways of worship and embraced the local devotion. What that had got her was debatable. Her baby had lived, but she died when Mosi was ten, her insides rotted, smiling at him and grinding her teeth at the same time. That was how it went in the Lees, for the grateful and ungrateful alike. Death by disease, when the best you could get was a room with eleven other people. Death by starvation, when you hurt yourself working and couldn't keep working. Death by fire, when someone was so weary from begging that they fell asleep and kicked a lamp into a pile of rags. Death from some foreigner's bullet because a general ordered you to charge onto the battlefield. And now even death by the actual fucking ground, when you were just being in a particular spot and it opened up beneath your feet without warning. If there was a humongous magic cat about that looked after the faithful, 
it was certainly very damned strict about waiting to do it until the faithful had died miserably. And when we die, if we've been decent, and if we've been good to the little ones here, the man gestured at the cats languidly picking their way over the rocky ground, there's a big one, the grandmother. She comes along and picks us up by our scruff like we was our own young ones. Thank you so much for taking us into your world in those two pages. It's the way that the the founding story and the devotional story and the personal stories all weave together is just, it's so brilliant. It's as if you were thinking of not work storytelling when you wrote those two pages and said, that's what I can bring. <laughs> <laughs> and in a larger context, the unnamed city where the action of the story is occurring, the mythology of the cat worship that takes place is a very much a faith of the lower classes. And we don't get into it too much, but the upper classes, they practice religion that's much more recognizable as Christian religion. And so the religion of the cats is sort of a, a thing that I made up for myself to give the city a particularity. Right. And yet they're so omnipresent in that way that even the beliefs of the people who are in the lowest classes and living closest to the ground, most afraid they're going to fall through, is yeah. also just seeped into the society at every level. The wealthiest hotels in town always have their own cat, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's sort of like a thing that the elites of the society put up with because mm. it's so central to life in the city is that there's these stray cats every which where some people have cats as pets but mostly it's just the cats are are like holy creatures that are allowed to roam free or are supposed to be allowed to roam free some people really hate them mm-hmm. and they're particularly valued by the people that practice the religion right yeah and they add to the the placeness of the place in in some yeah ways. yeah that's that's the idea and one of the things that i tried to do was or that was important to me is that I tried to not sentimentalize the cats from the perspective, you know, they're wild animals Mm -hmm. in this society. And so the people that worship them, look at them one way. And then a character like Mosi who doesn't, or is only very half-heartedly practices this religion. If it, even that, you know, looks at them differently and people who don't really don't like them, look at, look at them differently as well. So uh, they're not exactly pets. Which I admired in you and your artistry and authorship, knowing that you yourself do have rather a soft spot for my friends. <laughs> I do, I do. And there's one cat in particular in the book who gets her own chapter and has a way of reappearing. She's one of the hotel cats and she sort of crosses in and out of the story at different times. And I think the audience feels warmly toward her, but you know she doesn't get her own perspective. And so she's not, anthropomorphized she just does cat stuff and and seems to maybe have some ulterior motives or some purpose that we are trying to figure out and that hints at some magic or higher knowledge or or something like that but we never really know that for sure because we can't be inside her head we just see what she does which is exactly like life, right? When we're wondering, like, exactly. does, does he know what I'm thinking as he's snuggling around my head? Does he know I need comfort? Or is my head just particularly warm and he'd like to dry right. his wet paws in my hair? 
Yeah, no, and I think that that's the anytime you we've anybody's got a cat has seen a cat just like stare at the wall, mm-hmm. and it's like is that cat seeing a ghost or is that cat playing some sort of cat video game inside its mind? Are they just absent? Have they just gone to some sort of meditative place? You know, so you wonder. Yes. And are the birds and our beloved faces just as interesting as a blank wall? Is it all the exactly. same to them? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So knowing that cats will probably wrap around our feet throughout this conversation, I'm curious about this whole idea of you know pulling back the lens and thinking about kind of creating a mythology in general and knowing that how that comes to you, how you've looked at that, both in terms of first inspiration and creating as you go. Because of course, this show is so often about people who've taken past mythologies, written down, passed down orally in the quote unquote true sense, and that they've theoretically come from a source and have continued to to keep rolling across time, which is different, of course, than writing a modern novel where in that grand idea of where do ideas come from, you're working with things from a slightly different perspective than a lot of our myth workers do on this show, for example. Yeah. I mean, in the context of the novel, it is intended to create a greater density. And so that's its first role is, and and that density helps make a place seem more real, Mm. you know, when you're creating a setting. And a similar concept would be if you wrote a novel set in modern day and you created like a sports team and you had everybody like they had like chance particular chance for your made up sports team and players who had played on that team who had historical importance to them and nicknames and things like that and so it's a part of the world building right is the cultural touchstones of the place that you created when it's a when it's a totally new place and you're you're working outside of the world as we know it. And in the curator, the the world is a version of Earth. You know, people talk about Constantinople and the Ottoman Empire. And so it we have a sense that this is like our historical world, but there are also things that are a little bit different about it. It has two moons. There's this city that clearly doesn't exist in any way that we know of some of the technologies a little bit behind and some of the technologies a little bit ahead where we would expect so all that does help create the world and then the mythology of the cats and that religious practice does end up playing a role in solving the mystery that the main character whose name is Dora. She's a, a domestic servant who ends up working at a uh, at a museum after this revolution has occurred. And then this the the revolution is in this sort of in-between place. And so the the religion of the cats ends up playing a role in her story. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely clear what that's going to be until pretty late. But ultimately, for instance, the thing with the scratches, the cat scratching on the the dungeon floor or on the tree, there is an object that Dora finds that a cat has scratched at, and it does tell her another story. And so it sort of leads her in a certain direction. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think that it the, the story of the great big cat turns out to be true. It's not as if the novel confirms that in this world, there's a 
you know, a godlike feline that takes care of everybody after they die. You know, it's more mixed up than that. Right. And it's depending on your perspective on faith and spirituality, it's that sense of like, well, does it matter if the feline is real or not? Because she helps hold a lot of people's stories and moves their plot forward. What happens on the other side of the veil? Yeah, that's kind of neither here nor there for the actual plot of life, right? I think that's true. And I'm not a particularly religious person myself, but stories are a kind of religion to me, you know, and they give meaning to my life. And I try to create in the world people, characters that are also trying to find meaning in their lives. And those stories that they tell about the cats for some some of the characters, it does give meaning to their life. It gives a some sort of boundary to it. That's like, this isn't it. This isn't all we have. Yeah. Yeah. And it reveals their humanity in so many different ways. There's moments of like, oh, I see into the heart of that person now because of their interaction with their feelings about a cat, which again is yeah. a little bit like, you know, you have somebody over to your house for dinner and you, they're like a tough egg to crack potentially. And then like, oh, how do they interact with the cats? I see inside you. I understand there's a soft center in there. I try to mimic, there's a lot of different kinds of texts inside the text. You know, there's a play and there's a tabloid. And with the mythological stuff, there's a part where there's like a little snippet that's described as like the oral tradition of this religion. And with that and with the way that the guy tells the story to Lionel at at the shrine, I tried to collapse the language so that it mimicked a sort of Bible story, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Maybe collapse isn't the right way. I tried tried to evoke a little bit of that sound because that's how religious stories do sound, right? Right. It's not intended to be funny. Mm -hmm. It's like they're dead serious about this. And, And that's in keeping with the whole idea of not sentimentalizing the animals at all, you know, like they take it super seriously, the people who believe. Right. right? And I love how it's that example of, you know, we hear this in culture all the time, like the best way to connect is to tell a story. And you and I Uh being storytellers, we're like, well, yes, of course. And at the same time, there's moments where it's like, oh, right. And there it is in action in the similar way that if someone's trying to proselytize to you on the street, they're most likely going to give you a Bible verse or a, or a, hey, here's a parable of our Lord and Savior. And in a similar way of, this is how the cats did their magic in their work. And what I really love, what drew me to that piece was not only was here's one man's version, then there was then Mossy describing his mother's version and how that same but different nature of that just kind of strengthened the story and the sense of we all, whether you're lost in the desert or trapped in a dungeon, either way there's destitution and their salvation was clearly what that story was offering us. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that that's an important, I mean, even thinking of the New Testament and the way that the different versions tell different versions, right? And so it seemed correct to me, especially in this particular place where a lot of the people I'm, I'm thinking are not literate. Mm-hmm. They're telling a story to each other. And so different things, improvisations or different versions come alive for different characters. And yeah, that's a way I hope that it personalizes it for those 
two people, you know, the guy at the shrine and Mosi who's observing. In the kind of quick tagline of the podcast, it's Celtic mythology, Irish folklore, and heroine's tales. And of course, in so many ways, the curator is a heroine's tale. And Dora is so compelling. I'd just love to hear a bit from you about how she came into being and whether there's anything, you know, for you as a storyteller, how it's different potentially to tell a story through a woman's perspective who's not, and whether or not you have an opinion on hero versus heroine, if there's any difference for you in that other than perhaps gender presentation, if there's anything you, where you've ever gone with that sort of idea. Well, Dora is sort of on a, in a really broad sense, she wants to understand the different things that have brought her to this place in her life, which mostly has to do with something that happened to her family when she was quite young. And so she's trying to solve these mysteries. And she's my favorite protagonist in in the books that I've written, I think, because she is a underdog character and she functions in a way that's I hope is interesting. I mean, she is underestimated by everybody that that she encounters, which is what she would expect that in that particular society. Right. And so. If you think about the book as a kind of rewriting of the Victorian novel or a kind of a twist on it, and one of the twists is that she owns the perspective. And so we see how smart she is. We see that she's able to figure out things and figure out mysteries and solve problems that people don't think she even has the faintest clue about, right? And so that's one way in which I I hope that it surprises and pleases, but at the same time, she's also a flawed protagonist, which I think is crucial. I don't find it relatable. Relatability is a little bit overrated. I should say, I don't find it convincing. Mm when I read a novel or see a movie where the protagonist is purely good. That's a little dull for me and also doesn't really risk anything or ask anything of the audience. Right. You know, doesn't doesn't really ask any questions of them. It's like, obviously you're going to root for somebody who is like a pure hero. Right. Right. I think that for me, that's the place where, just stepping back a second, when I think about myths, I get excited when I start personalizing the myth. You know, mm-hmm. when I start thinking about Aladdin and like he gets the lamp, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but like when I start thinking about Aladdin, I start thinking like, what was he tempted by? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the thing that he wanted to have for himself that would be purely selfish and things like that? That's when. To me, I get really excited about myths when I can hijack them, really bring them into a life of a character or really characterize the people in the myth, right? And and it's the same thing. um, There's this beautiful little Grimm's fairy tale book with art by David Hockney. And it's a version of David Hockney's art. You know, we think of David Hockney's art as these the incredible blues, like the um, like these California blues. That's what I always think about, like, was, like the swimming pools and everything. Yep. In these pictures and these illustrations that he did, which I think are probably from the 70s or 60s or something, there's like these geometric castles and the characters have like all these sharp edges. And I, I just love that very personal, weird 
interpretation that he had of, of these fairy tales, of these myths. And then just jumping back into the book, I think that in terms of the uh, the question of heroes and heroines, I can only tell you that in the in the book, one of the things that I had to think about a lot was she has to operate inside the rules of the society. Mm-hmm. And the rules of the society say that this unmarried woman of very little means needs to be careful. Right. She can't draw attention to herself. She would not want to. She wants to figure out what happened to her family. She's very intent and set on that. And she wants to preserve her safety and her position, right? And so one of the things that I struggled with in the book is that my most interesting character can't move around without a really good reason. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so big way that I tell the larger story is that there is the story of her trying to figure this mystery out and exploring this museum and discovering things about the environment around her where she is, is I broaden the canvas and use other characters interspersed with her story. And then, so that's a limitation that I had to observe, but then the last third of the book, she becomes much more active. And just from a dramatic point of view, it was important to me that for the most part, no one fixes anything for her. She almost always solves her own it sounds a little contrived, but hopefully it's not, is that the rules of the drama or like the satisfaction of the drama depends on Dora doing all that stuff because she is capable of doing it. But she has to be in a position to do it inside the rules. And so as the city's falling apart in the last third of the book, her opportunities open up and she does really brave things. And when she's threatened, she mostly solves those threats on her own. There's one instance when she, when someone helps her, but even in that instance, she's sort of telling the person, do this. Right. And so he does it. Right. right. And to me, that's very appropriate to a story that is about this flawed heroine getting to be the heroine, right? A tip for readers is when you're going to read the last third of the book, start it early enough in the evening so that you're not cursing Owen King for keeping you up way past bedtime, which is definitely what happened to me when I'm like, I can't stop. I got to do the last 130 pages in one sitting, which is just testament to the fact that I think what you did worked in terms of like that last third is like, yes. And I wonder there's in some way, depending on a perspective on a heroine versus hero, I would wonder too, like sometimes there's a lot of baggage to this and it gets a little pejorative. Penelope is the heroine and Odysseus is the hero. It's almost that sense of, I don't think it lessens her or lessens the power of the heroine at all to say, oh, she did sort of transform from that heroine. I have to stay within the bounds, within the castle walls kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then I'm allowed to go out and be in the wilds of the world. It's a little bit like a transition from heroine energy to hero energy, though is Obviously, it kind of just proves the point that one individual can be both and have both inside of them throughout their story. Yeah, and I think that she is more heroic by virtue of 
the story staying true to its rules. Right. Yeah. If she could do things more freely sometimes, but not others, it just breaks the contract that you've made with the world that you've created. And so it ends up meaning nothing. Right. So I just think it's more interesting if she has to overcome these extra challenges. Totally. I like her better for it. And I find it a more a more compelling story, although I also understand why it won't be for every reader, because you can I totally understand why somebody's gonna be like, I don't want to read this story about this woman that has to overcome these challenges that I find incredibly objectionable. That's totally fine, but that's what the story is about, right? Right, right. right. And you all, you know, there's plenty of characters with free reign the male ones for the most part, a couple of female characters who are kind of living outside of the norm. And they are not the heroes of the tale. It's just like, oh yeah, you can all run amok and go wherever you want. And every deed is dastardly. So. Right. It's true (laughs) for the most part. The more freely people move around, the more dastardly they behave. So I want to call us back for a moment to that idea you, you offered us around that sense of the character that's too... I forget the exact languaging you use, the too good character, the one who's too relatable, too lovely. And I just did another interview with a woman, Tara Wilde, who's talking about the women of the Grail stories. And we were in part of our conversation, we we're talking about there's the the Grail maiden who holds the cup and she has this radiance to her. And then there's these other two women, one who embodies sorrow and the other who's that kind of that loathly hag. And in the course of our conversation, I think I was I was agreeing with you before you and I had had this chat in the sense of like, oh, I'm much more fascinated by by sorrow and the loathliness than that lovely, radiant being holding the cup. And Tara has some really cool things to say about how she interprets that. But I'm thinking about that in this context now, because another really key character in this, and I guess I would love for you to correct me whether there's one crone or several, but you have some really compelling old women creatures, characters, energy that come through in some very pivotal parts in the book and really seem to hold a lot of importance in the mythology, maybe equally as much as the cats in certain ways. Yeah, I think I think you mentioned to me you wanted to talk about there's a there's a particular old lady. She she ne- she doesn't have a, a name, but the character of Dora's lover is this this young man, this incredibly idealistic, but also this character named Robert, he's in his early 20s. He's a university student. He's very idealistic, but he's simultaneously representative of the sort of essence of this patriarchal society in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. He has these ideals about a more equal society, but he's also very uncertain about giving up certain privileges. He is self-aware enough to know that this more equal society is going to cost him personally and finding a way to balance that in his mind as a struggle and his behavior does not match up with somebody who is going to be able to make that i really like robert a lot of people don't i really like him because i think that's real mm. i mean i think of all there's lots of people with enormous privilege who see the path to a better society but can they really give up some of what they have to do it and robert was thinking about that right and struggling with that throughout the book when, we, when we're in his perspective. And so one of the things that he does is he's out in the streets and people are struggling because there's this blockade that has held up trade in the city. And the revolution, they got the government out, the royal government out, but 
the royal government's just sitting outside the city and there's this negotiation, this interminable negotiation taking place. And Robert is out in the street giving a speech to a bunch of impoverished people in a bread line. Mm-hmm. And he explains how great everything is going to be. And this delightful old lady just patronizes the shit out of him about his speech as well she should because everything that he is claiming is going to come to pass he is claiming is going to come to pass but she's been waiting and i love the moment because she is a kind of a figure of truth you know she's unattractive unpleasant and accurate Mm -hmm. it's not working what he says is going to work isn't working it really bugs him but it also gets through to him it's the first time that robert sort of wonders if this thing that he's convinced himself of but that he hasn't actually committed to in certain ways isn't going to come to pass Mm. and so she's a she's a, a i I think you could say she is kind of a figure of myth in that way, you know? And then there are these elderly twins who are super evil and super depraved. Dastardly. Who is very, very dastardly. (laughs) And by virtue of their seeming harmlessness, are able to operate outside the bounds of society, outside the rules for for female life in this city. And that allows them the freedom to do the horrible things that they want to do. I mean, they're they're wicked. They're super wicked. Oh, and then there's a, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but there is a crossing into another place. And in the other place, there's an old woman who is very directly drawn from myth, yeah. who gives people new faces and is a is some kind of higher power. She is the representative of some kind of higher power, and she has the ability to make people young, old, and different. She's kind of a spin on the three old ladies who cut the strings. The fates. Yeah. Yeah. So she's kind of like that. She has a pair of scissors that she uses to give people new faces. Um, Although we never see her do it. So there are these different uh, older women in the book. There's another older woman who's a bartender, mm-hmm. a saloon keeper, and she's a totally different character, you know? And so just on a character level, I try to make all these characters sound super distinct. The woman on the street who talks to, who tells Robert off, she's really frank and sharp. And the, old ladies have kind of a, a more baroque form of speech the old the old mm-hmm. twins run around killing people they have this more baroque speech ray the saloon keeper is very body and then that otherworldly female right she is very confused she doesn't even know who she is anymore who needs an identity in right? the world <laughs> <laughs> she's been she's i mean that's kind of one of those things um i was thinking about if you're an immortal being your memory must go at some point, right? And that's kind of what's happened to her. Right. She's lived so long, she doesn't exactly know what's going on. She just knows she would like it to stop. Yeah, what are the rocks and stones remember? Give her job to somebody else, you know? Yeah. Well, I just so appreciate all those different 
you know, very different characters in the sense that, you know, on this show, particularly, we talk a lot about the Celtic Irish Kalyak and that kind of that hag energy. But she has so many different stories. And I feel like so much of the part of my work is that sense of like, how do we take that stock character potentially of, oh, that's the old lady, that's the crone and yep. continues. Like, and there are millions of different facets and ways for that to show up. And it's part of the work that I do with mythology saying, well, I'm going to be that old lady someday. I'm going to be her for decades. I'm going to have, I'm going to have the anarchic laughter and I'm going to make really inappropriate jokes and I'm going to be the wise old sage. And I am going to uh, potentially eventually be staring at the wall like the cat. And all of those will be the brilliant facets of what it is to be that elder, to be that Kalyak, to be all the beings that you offer us to. And I think that when you're writing a novel or a story, you can think about those things and then you want to get that personalization in there. You want to get that particularity in there. And so these different characters, the thing they share is that they're older women, but they're all very, very different. Uh, they all have different power. Mm -hmm. Some good, some bad, some in between, but all hopefully convincing in the context of this world where all the characters are a little big, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as we start to kind of land our conversation, I would love to just talk briefly about a passion I think you and I both have, which is around audiobooks and the power of a narrator. And I was just reading your most recent Substack, and I know you, and I love the way you said you kind of take issue with the idea of the way a narrator can bring a story to life because that's not really what they're doing. Do you want to say a little bit more about what you see as the role of the audiobook narrator and how that enriches? Yeah. I think all the audiobook readers are trying to do, it, it's this very particular kind of acting. Mm -hmm. And it is a an acting that emphasizes a kind of storiness is what I would describe it as. And so it's a little bit more than a little bit it's qu it's quite a bit larger than the kind of acting that you see on a movie screen which is like small acting right you know you're not actors on a screen are not playing to the back of this of the right. theater right whereas stage actors are, are a little bit bigger and so it's it's closer to like stage acting and i think that the really amazing narrators like marin ireland who did the curator she is she's doing a different voice for every single character and she's got like a particular narrative tone and that narr even the narrative tone is shifting according to the point of view in my book it's all third person close so it's all dora's third person close is different than mosi's third person close you know mosi everything is dented in his mm -hmm. point of view right and so when when marin is reading mosi it's going to sound like he's carrying a load of bricks on his back, right? Whereas Dora is something she's thinking with her voice is going to be clearer and more sort of probing sound to it. And then, of course, she's doing all the different dialogue voices. And what's amazing to me about how good she is and how good the very best narrators are is that I'm listening to her. And for instance, there's a character named Marl. And I thought of him as this gregarious drunk. Mm -hmm. He has a slur in all his dialogue. And Marin portrayed him as being like 
drunk in like a sodden way. And so everything he says, she makes him morose. And that's not how I thought of him. But in listening to it, I'm like, oh, no, this is better to me. He is more alive now. And I'm always going to think of it in her sound now, you know, the way that you see a film and, and a sort of actor can kind of steal the face of the character that uh, it from the book mm-hmm. that you read. And so if another narrator read the book, I might get a different, I would, would definitely get a different tone. And that might make me rethink what she did, although probably not because she's so good. And so I think that the, the audio book narrators, I think there's a lot of life in my book. So I wouldn't say she's bringing it to life. But she's putting on a performance. Yeah. She is really performing the book and she's making her own creative choices and her own, her bringing her own imagination to bear on the project. And that's its own art that doesn't, I mean, that's part of when you write a book, you give it up and it never belongs to you again. It always belongs to everybody else and there's nothing you can do about it. So, even if I didn't agree with the things she was doing, it wouldn't matter because now it's her art right. that she's making. I happen to yeah. love it. And so I, I think that that's, it's its own art form and it is a super thrill to hear a wildly gifted performer, and she's a storyteller, mm-hmm. a wildly gifted storyteller, tell my mm-hmm. story, the story that I wrote. So yeah, it's it's amazing. And the very best audiobook readers are just a treat. You know, you'd listen to them do just about anything because they can also make just about anything seem really, really cool because they're bringing action to it. Yeah, well, I first heard Marin Ireland's work in Your Sleeping Beauties and completely fell in love with her performance and voice and then started discovering books I probably wouldn't have because I was leaping through her catalog. But it's really interesting. At this point, I'd say... I read about five to 10% of my fiction at this point. I listen to all of it, but it's so funny that, of course, you put a copy of the book in my hand. So I I read it, which is an unusual, like, oh God, I haven't Uh read a novel in a really long time. So then it's really ironic. We end this conversation with saying, and go check out the audiobook version. Thank you for having me. And I hope everybody enjoys the podcast and it was a pleasure Um, talking to you. Yeah. Go make stories, everybody. Absolutely. And go out and pick up a copy of The Curator, everybody, or download the audiobook. It's just such a rich and rewarding read. Well, Owen, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a treat. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. 
Find out more about their music and shows at billionbath.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.